And the main point is that people should respond favorably to the Lord's servant. And that is the only way to avoid God's judgment. No idol, no other God, no other option will rescue people from God's judgment. Only the servant of the Lord, who we know to be Jesus Christ. Welcome back to the Resurrection Church Podcast. This is week 41 of our Reading Through the Bible in a Year plan. We're grateful for everyone who's reading through the Bible with us. I'm really grateful for Matthew and AJ doing this with me every single week. We had a lot of schedule conflicts this week, and neither Matthew nor AJ were able to coordinate with me, and I was not able to coordinate with them. So I am by myself for this episode, but we still wanted to give you at least something to ensure that we have every week covered going through this plan. And I think this is only the third time I've had to do this. So major shout out to AJ and Matthew for almost every week of this year, um, reading through the Bible and then taking the time to sit down and talk through it on the podcast. Our reading this week is Isaiah 48 through 66, so we complete the book of Isaiah. And then we also have Philippians, uh, every chapter of that letter. So I'm going to just make a few comments about Isaiah. Uh, there, There is so much in this portion that it is really difficult to know how to get through it all, especially you know, just going by myself. I I don't want to go page by page and comment on everything. So I just want to give a couple of general comments. The first is that in this section, we're moving from only a critique on Israel's present to a telling of the future new creation work that God is going to do ultimately through the servant. Um, These verses are so clearly messianic. Um, We see in our reading of the New Testament, that the New Testament authors quote many of them. Jesus himself reads a portion of Isaiah and says that what they're hearing is fulfilled in him. So Isaiah 61, 1 through 3 is read by Jesus. That's that's recounted in Luke 4, 16 through 21. So over and over and over again, these passages are just so clearly fulfilled by Christ. But it's also interesting that they're not ultimately fulfilled in Christ's first coming. So even though there's a sense in which his declaration that it is finished is true, uh, there's more that's still to come. His kingdom has not fully been um, brought to pass in the new creation. So we're waiting for that day. We wait for the Lord's return. And um, that that is something that we pray for, that we long for, that we read these really poetic texts in Isaiah, and we're not quite sure really even what to expect. Um, these, these texts are really tough to interpret at time. It's tough to know how to imagine what the new creation will be. Um, so let me give you one example of how this poetry is kind of hard to understand. So in Isaiah 60, 19, he writes, The sun will no longer be your, your light by day, and the brightness of the moon will not shine on you. The Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your splendor. So, you know, you might imagine that the sun and the moon have now disappeared. 
uh, they're, they're no longer in existence or something like that. But then, um, in verse 20, he says, your sun will no longer set and your moon will not fade for the Lord will be your everlasting light and the days of your sorrow will be over. So it's kind of hard because it seems like the different images that he is putting out here are not totally consistent with themselves. And I don't know that they're intended to be. He's just trying to say in a variety of ways that the glory of the Lord will be encompassing the entire globe. Um, So when we read these texts, we shouldn't probably overly construct an idea of what the new creation will be like. Um, There's one guy who talks about these texts like signposts in the fog. They're pointing us in a particular direction. They're giving us a little bit of an idea of what it will be like, but we can't really precisely say what life will be like in the new creation other than that there will be God's righteousness and justice. His servant will rule over all things. Um, all, All of these things we can say with certainty, but we have to take this poetic language as it is, as poetry, and um, be open to the surprise of what the new creation will be. Just to illustrate some of the challenges here, we could look again at Isaiah 65, where in verse 17, there's this quotation, for I will create new heavens and a new earth. The past events will not be remembered or come to mind. Then be glad and rejoice forever in what I am creating. And there's this description of the new Jerusalem Um, that's going to be a joy. Its people will be a delight. There will be no sound of weeping and crying. Um, And and then there's like this really cryptic language of an old man will not live out his days. Indeed, the one who dies at a hundred years old will be mourned as a young man. And the one who misses a hundred years will be considered cursed. Um, You know, my people's lives will be like the lifetime of a tree. And obviously, this is poetic language once again, and uh, these descriptions of the new creation are really challenging because in this text, it seems like people will die in the new creation, um, even as the length of life is extended for a really, really long time. Uh, But then in other poetic passages, it seems like there will be no death at all. So I think we just have to recognize um, the challenges of reading poetry, the challenge of reading prophetic poetry in particular. And as we read these texts, we should allow it to do what it's intended to do, which is to give us hope in the new creation work of God through Christ and the promise of um, a a new creation, uh, a renewed, restored earth in which we will live according to the righteousness of God in fellowship with him in the light of his glory. And whatever that looks like, we know it will be joyful and right, and we look forward to that day, whatever that's going to mean. A final note in these sections that are talking about the restoration of Israel, there are significant signs that it's not just Israel that will be restored, but all of the nations. Um, God will gather all the nations and languages, and they will see his glory. And um, this is really an expansion beyond any hope that's ever been there before. And 
it's kind of challenging to know exactly the relationship between Israel and the rest of the nations. This is something that theologians have debated for a really, really long time. And uh, there's probably not a super good and clear answer, but I can make a little bit of a stab at it from some of the passages here in Isaiah. A key text here is Isaiah 49, 3, where the servant of the Lord is being described, and um, it's phrased this way, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. And then there's this very messianic description, and and this servant is appointed to be a covenant for the people. That's Isaiah 49, 8. And I think what we need to gather from here is that ethnic Israel failed to maintain covenant faithfulness with God over and over and over again. So he determines to send his servant, who we know to be Jesus the Messiah, who becomes Israel or the true Israel, the Israel of God. And when this servant gathers people to himself to see the glory of the Lord, these people find an identity in him and in the covenant that he brings. And as we know from the author of Hebrews, Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant, and both Jews and Gentiles, Israel and non-Israelites, are welcomed into this covenant people of God as they live in the righteousness of God beneath the glory of the Lord. So I, w- I would just want to simply say that the church does not replace Israel, Christ is the true Israel, and the church is the body of Christ. We're added to him and made his people. I think that's what we got into a little bit last week in our reading of Ephesians, where there's one new man that's made in Jesus Christ. So it is really challenging to know how all of the promises come to fulfillment in Christ, what that looks like, what it looks like for um, the future new creation. And there are a lot of different theories on this. And I would just want to go with the simplest way of looking at it, which is to say that Jesus becomes the fulfillment of Israel's history as um, he is God's yes and amen. He's the fulfillment of all of the promises. He is the true Israel. And this one gathers everyone together under the name of the Lord. And they take on the identity of Israel per se. I think this is kind of what's going on in Isaiah 44 verse 5, I believe. This was from our reading last week. Um, It says, this one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will use the name of Jacob. So another will write on his hand, the Lord's and take on the name of Israel. And I think that's a little bit of the point. Gentiles, non-Israelites will take on the name of Israel. There's a real sense in which they become the sons and daughters of God, even though they are not um, ethnically Israelites. And there are multiple other soundings throughout the text that you'll read for this week where Gentiles are added to the people of God, and there's really this promise that they won't be rejected. None of them are going to be turned away. So just one final example of this in Isaiah 56, verse 3, says, No foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord should say, The Lord will exclude me from his people. So there, there's indication over and over again that God adds to his people all those on planet earth who will respond favorably to the servant of the Lord, 
the true Israel, who we know to be Jesus Christ. So this this is really a complicated thing, and that's probably all that I can take time for in this podcast. But I did do a biblical theology class, Bible class, and all of those lectures are on our church website. And I got into this a lot more, especially in the uh, debates between dispensationalists and covenantalists and kind of a middle way, we might say the progressive covenantalist view, which is pretty close to what I'm talking about here in seeing Christ is the true Israel and everyone else who responds favorably to the true Israel added and taking on the name of God's people. But the book of Isaiah ends with a word of hope and a word of judgment. So it's a new creation is described in chapter 65. There's a final judgment that's described in chapter 66 for those who do not respond favorably to the servant of the Lord. Um, And there's this description that these individuals who will experience God's judgment will be a horror to all humanity. So again, it's hard to envision exactly what it looks like. Um, there's, a, there's just this really graphic depiction of God's people um, walking out of the city of God, the holy mountain, Jerusalem. And as they leave, they see the dead bodies of those who have rebelled against me for their worm will never die, their fire will never go out, and they'll be a horror to all humanity. And it it is challenging to know precisely what that means or what that looks like. Again, this is poetic, prophetic imagery. Um, so it's hard, it's hard to imagine what exactly that will look like in the future. I think we should avoid um, perhaps looking at this super literally as if um, somewhere the righteous in the new creation will be walking and they'll see the dead bodies of God's enemies or something like that. I, I don't know what this is intended to communicate. It's, it's really challenging, and I hope someday I'll have the opportunity to study it further. But we want to get the main point, and the main point is that people should respond favorably to the Lord's servant, and that is the only way to avoid God's judgment. No idol, no other God, no other option will rescue people from God's judgment. Only the servant of the Lord, who we know to be Jesus Christ. I know that that was a woefully inadequate review or overview of those chapters, but hopefully it's helpful as we wrap up this book of Isaiah, and hopefully we're all encouraged to go back and revisit this really long, but a really rich book in future years. I'll turn my attention now to the letter of Paul to the Philippians. Josh just preached through this book not that long ago. So if you want to think more about it, I would just point you to his sermons on our church website. I was on sabbatical for several of them, but I was able to listen to most of them and they were really encouraging and helpful. I think Josh did a good job explaining this letter. So I only want to point out a few things that that might be helpful as you're reading this text. In chapter 1, Paul comments that he has been imprisoned, but he notes in verse 12 that his imprisonment has actually been a good thing because it's advanced the gospel, particularly among the whole imperial guard. So you, we need to remember that he's probably in Roman captivity, he's in a prison, and the leader of Rome is Caesar. Caesar claims to be the Lord. 
he he claims to be the savior of Rome. He claims to be the son of a god. So when Paul talks, you need to have that in mind because when Paul talks about the fact that some people are preaching Christ in a negative way. Um, so some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of good will. He says that some others proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely thinking that they will cause me trouble in my imprisonment. And that's sometimes a loss on us. How How is it that people could be proclaiming Christ insincerely in a way that would cause Paul more trouble in his imprisonment? And I think what get, he's getting at here is that there are people who are preaching about Jesus Christ, not sincerely, not actually trying to convince people to um, repent of their sin and find forgiveness in Jesus Christ, but they're preaching the words of the gospel in a way that would antagonize the imperial Roman government and make them look at Paul as if he is causing a problem. He is preaching to cause a revolt or something. So if you're keeping in mind that Caesar is claiming to be Lord and Paul is preaching the gospel that Jesus is Lord, Jesus is the king of the universe, the king of kings, you can see how people might be proclaiming that in a way that would get Paul in greater trouble. And that's their whole intent. So they're saying, yes, Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. And that's what this guy Paul is proclaiming. So you should arrest him. And um, he's a dangerous actor. He's he's out there to overthrow the government of Rome by proclaiming a king other than Caesar, a lord other than Caesar. He keeps saying that this Jesus Christ is king and lord, um, and he needs to stay in prison because he's only going to cause trouble. So I think that's probably what's going on. And Paul just responds to that and says, I don't care if they're doing it insincerely and they're just trying to get me in more trouble. They're proclaiming the truth that Jesus is the Lord, that he is the king, that he is the savior, that Caesar is not. And of course, Paul's aim in proclaiming the gospel isn't to overthrow the Roman government, um, but he does declare a gospel that will eventuate in the overthrow of the Roman government and the overthrow of all other governments on that final day when Christ returns and establishes his kingdom forever. So that bit of background, this way that the Caesar is talked about, uh, and it's sometimes talked about as the imperial cult, with that information in the background, you can see how people could nefariously proclaim Christ's kingship in a way that would make Paul's imprisonment worse. I think that's what he's getting at here. Another thing that I want to comment about from the letter of Philippians is this language that Paul uses to describe Christians as citizens of heaven. So in chapter 1, verse 27, he says, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then in chapter 3, verse 20, he picks up this language again. In that verse, he says, our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly wait for a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, this background information is really helpful. If if you're reading that those verses and grabbing onto that imagery of Christians having citizenship in heaven, and you're not thinking about the ancient background, probably the way that that text gets applied is, hey, we're on planet earth, but we're really citizens of heaven, and we just can't wait to get up to heaven, to leave earth and go up to heaven where our true citizenship is. But that's not the imagery that Paul is trying to get across. 
So you probably have enough background information to realize that people could be declared citizens of Rome, even if they didn't live in Rome. So these different colonies would be established or Rome would take over other city states pretty much, and people could gain Roman citizenship. And and they would take pride in their Roman citizenship, even though they didn't live in Rome. And their intent was never to leave their place of dwelling and go to Rome and live there instead. Uh, So people in Philippi who would have been identified as Roman citizens didn't have it as their life goal to get out of Philippi and to get into Rome. So when you were called a Roman citizen, um, what you would be waiting for is for the Caesar, the ruler of Rome, to come and visit your colony. Um, You would greet him. You, You know, that's your guy. And that's the imagery that Paul is trying to get across. Christians on earth have a citizenship in heaven, and we're waiting for our ruler to come from there to visit our dwelling place. So just as the guy living in Philippi, who was a Roman citizen, didn't have as his life goal to get out of Philippi, Christians don't have as their life goal to get off of planet earth. Instead, our hope is that the ruler of heaven will come to planet earth. And that's what Paul gets at in Philippians 3.20. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly wait for a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, with that Roman imperial background in mind, these terms savior and Lord were often applied to Caesar. So you can see how Paul is grabbing onto that language and showing, look, Christians, there is a a more authoritative and better king that's connected to a better citizenship. And he is going to return from heaven onto earth to establish his kingdom forever. So I I think it's really important to note this because often Christians get this notion that the greatest hope in our Christian faith is for us to be able to leave earth to get to heaven. So I grew up going to this camp and uh, we would sing songs about, uh, I got a home in glory land that outshines the sun or, um, heaven's a wonderful place to be. God tells about it in his word. Heaven, my home is up there. I'm saved. So my hope's assured. And then we'd sing this line. I like it here at Richmond, like camp. It's the next best place to be, but heaven's a wonderful place. Well, they're misusing these texts to conjure up this whole idea that heavenly citizenship means that we can't wait to get off planet earth when really it means that we can't wait for our King, our Lord, our Savior to come from there to earth to establish his kingdom forever. Of course, this letter is filled with a lot of instructions for living well as Christians on the earth, and we're given good examples of people's wealth. I think it's significant in chapter 2 when Paul says that he hopes to send Timothy to the Philippians soon. He describes Timothy in this way. He says, I have no one else like-minded who will genuinely care about your interests. All seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. And I think it's a good uh, example for us. We want to be the kind of people who have other people's interests in mind, ultimately the interests of Jesus Christ. Uh, So that's a great word of commendation for Timothy. Josh, I think, sufficiently covered the use of Philippians 4.13. Um, We don't say we can do anything that we want through him who strengthens us. This takes place in a particular context and ultimately in the context of living in contentment, knowing that God will supply all of our needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. 
Finally, to draw another point of connection to the importance of the historical background here, as he ends the letter, he says, all the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. Uh, So it's interesting how he's talked about Christ as the true king, the true Lord, the true savior. Probably people are bending that language to make it seem like Paul is an insurrectionist, but even those within Caesar's own household have come to faith in Christ. So there's this whole background that we need to keep in mind as we read a letter like Philippians. Well, we will continue to read through the Bible. We are getting close to the end of the year, and we're getting close to the end of our Bible reading. And I just remind you that even though we aren't talking about Psalms and Proverbs, Those texts are included in the Bible readings for every week, so hopefully you've been able to read those passages along with your Old and New Testament readings. But ultimately, our goal is to know God um, rightly, to love Him deeply, and to live in response in an appropriate way as we seek to live out our faith in this world. So let's keep reading, let's keep pressing on to the end, and we look forward to um, talking in just a few days about our next passages as we pick up Colossians and start 1 Thessalonians, and then as we begin the book of Jeremiah. 